Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning, everybody. I tell you, it's so much fun to sit over there, play piano, and to hear you sing. You guys, you guys are rocking it this morning. Love it. All of you on live stream, you're singing great too. Keep it up. I know that might be kind of weird if you're at home and you're singing to your family, but jump in and, and join the song. Uh, it's one of the things that we just love about gathering together, whether in person or virtual. The power of music is fantastic. Um, this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We are going to continue our study on the image of God, uh, concluding that today. And then next week, we've got zero gravity or upward bound ministries, of which um, one of our own, Kevin Veening, is the executive director of Upward Bound here in, in Zealand. And so we're excited to have him here in teaching next week and learning more about what God is doing in their ministry. And then the week after that, we're going to begin a new series on the kingdom coming from the gospels. So we're going to ha- have much in store in the next few weeks here. Um, One more thing while you're turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. I know many of you have begun reading plans this year. Uh, Whether it's reading through the whole Bible in a year or two years or three years, there's different ways to do it. Whether it's reading through a single book and going deep diving on that subject. I've got a friend here who's studying Exodus this season and he just... I love hearing what God is teaching him. Um, Maybe you are um, beginning a reading plan through the New Testament or continuing that. If you are doing the whole Bible through, maybe you're in like Leviticus or Numbers or something like that. I just want to say, keep going. (laughs) Keep going. It matters. The time in devotion and um, attention that we pour into the study of the scripture matters for our life. And so you will find just incredible blessing through that. And we are here to help in any way we can, whether it's finding the right Bible for you that you can understand, whether it's finding some resources to help you do devotions at home, we are full of ideas. So come talk with us if there's some way we can help you as you begin again reading and studying God's word again this year. Um, Last week, we talked about how mankind was created in God's image, and he was created to bear witness of who his creator was, the identity and the the, um, authority of the rightful king. That's what it means to bear God's image in the world. Um, This image, we learned last week, however, was marred by something that took place in the garden. Adam and Eve took of the fruit they ate, and their eyes were opened. They knew both good and evil, and their attempt to become like God, knowing good and evil, led to great pain and toil and struggle that we feel even to this day. One of the um, popular genres of film and TV are cop dramas, or uh, are dramas having to do with law enforcement. And True confessions, I I love shows like that, generally speaking. I I love finding, all right, how are they going to solve this particular case? Um, How are they going to struggle with the balance of good and evil? What does it mean to be righteous and be in the position that they're in? How is what was wrong going to be made right? Well, this morning, 
Um, we are looking at kind of a genre of police detective show, I guess. We're, we're looking at the first murder in the history of the world from Genesis chapter 4. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible this year, maybe you've never even read the Bible before, you're going to find out there's a lot of challenging stuff in there. A lot of stuff. And in fact, one of the things I love about the Bible is they don't sugarcoat it. You've got Abraham who makes a decision to tell a couple of different rulers, hey, this lady that's my wife, she's really my sister, to try and kind of give a little bit of a um, security to himself instead of trusting God, all right? Doesn't put Abraham in the best light. You find people even like David who engage in things like adultery and murder, and yet God calls him a person after his own heart. The scripture doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sugarcoat the really difficult stuff of life but in the midst of all of that, it shows how God is sufficient and how God brings grace and how God brings restoration to people who come to him and recognize their sin before him. And that's in part what we are going to be looking at as we study Genesis chapter 4 today. And so um, as we do that, um, I invite you to stand with me one more time. Before we read our passage this morning... I invite you to say these words after me, an affirmation, a declaration of our faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hear these, the very words of God from Genesis chapter 4. Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed you're alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear since you're banishing me today from the soil and I must hide myself from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me, will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. 
And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Our Father and our King, we come to your word again this morning, asking that you would teach us, that your spirit would reveal to us the truth of this passage and how we can rightly apply it to our lives. God, may we be hearers of the word and doers of the word this day. We pray for the glory of our risen Messiah, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. All right, so we are introduced to, after the first couple of introductory verses, we have Adam and Eve who have a child, and then they have another child. Adam and Eve give birth to Cain. And Eve says, I have had male, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Now just think for a moment. The last thing that God has told her, at least that we know, one of the last things that he's told her is that I'm going to intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. This was likely a very, very hard event. And as a part of that, though, there's a promise. Because a couple of verses earlier in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Between your seed and her seed, you, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so you have this messianic promise that God would make things right and it would happen through the seed of the woman. So imagine... You're Eve. You're about ready to have your son or your daughter. I guess you don't know at that point. And you're thinking, will this be the one through whom God will restore all things? So we have Adam and, Adam and Eve. They give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Most of our narrative deals with Cain, but Abel has to be there because he's the counterpoint to the story here. Uh, Cain is a worker of the ground, and we know from the prior chapter of Genesis that that work was hard. It was toil. It was toil because of sin. But he works the ground, and Abel does a, a profession that complements it well. He's a keeper of the flocks, and these sons represent two important roles within the world at this time. Since the food of the garden was no longer available to humanity, they work with it for a curse, but then flocks are also helpful in both the production of um, wool for clothes, uh, the production of skins for all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. So Cain's born and Abel is born. Now Abel, in, in Hebrew, his word means this. His word means breath or meaningless. The author of Ecclesiastes uses his word to describe meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But it's this idea of you're here, you're gone. Like a breath is what his name means. And it foreshadows a bit of what is to come in the story. The following section deals with three main characters, God, Cain, and Abel. However, only two speak words. Only two speak words. We come to verse 3. Uh, it says, actually, yeah, verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the produce as an offering to the Lord. All right? So we have Cain pro producing an offering. The idea here of offering, you could translate this word gift. He's bringing a gift to God, and he's not the only one that does so. His brother also brings a gift, and this sets up the 
conflict at play here. Now, this offering was not a requirement from God. At this point, so far as we know, God did not say, I want you to bring an offering of your produce. This is a gift. Why would someone bring a gift? One of the reasons they would bring a gift is they would recognize who God is. They would recognize that he is their creator, that, that it's actually, even though it's the work of their hands that in part produce what's before them, um, they didn't make the world. They didn't make everything in it. They are still dependent people. Even as God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, he sends them with clothing to cover them. God, God even though they have sinned, is seeking to restore relationship and to provide for them in a whole host of different ways. And, and so they, they give this offering um, as a gesture of thankfulness. You know, as the psalmist says in Psalm 100, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that Yahweh is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. I think that's maybe one of the reasons they bring this gift. They, they're acknowledging that, that Yahweh is their creator. They're, they're seeking to serve him. And we, and we see how this plays out in two different ways. Cain brings um, some of the land's produce as an offering. Verse 4, Abel also presented an offering. It says, Some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But verse 5 tells us that he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So, God looks upon the one brother and says, No, that does not please me. He looks on the other brother and he says, That pleases me. What's at play here? Uh, scholars talk about this in a couple different ways. Some of them hypothesize that, well, um, Abel brought an animal sacrifice, so that was more pleasing to God. Some people say that. Um, some people, uh, I, I think, rightly hone in on this phrase. I think the answer for us here is found in the text. Um, when it says Cain presented some of the land's produce, that's all it says. In verse 4, Abel brings... Something that he has been a part of. You know, you know so, so Cain's bringing a part of his labor and he's saying, God, here it is, a gift to you. Abel's bringing a part of his labor, which is why I don't think it's the animal thing. It's not, it's, it's not like you had to offer an animal sacrifice at this point because God hasn't called them to do this yet. Abel brings an offering though, and notice what it says. The firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. One of the principles of scripture that, that will come eventually is that the firstborn always belongs to God. In the idea of ancient Israel, they, they would have a firstborn of the flock that would be a, a part of a sacrifice, and, and not always a part of a sacrifice, because you could redeem the firstborn as well. Um, but here you have not just the firstborn, that, that, that first fruits offering you have, and of the fat portions. In other words, Abel is giving the very best and the very first of what he has to God. Cain is not. Cain is bringing something of his. It'd be kind of like if you had, um, if, if you were a, a, a tomato grower at home, for example. It's the summertime. Just imagine you have these beautiful tomatoes, and you, you take the nicest ones, and you say, wow, that would make a really good salad. And you take them in, and you put them on your salad. And then you come to the seconds, which are a great deal at the market, by the way. If you, if you want to go cheap, you go seconds. Uh, but you come to the seconds of what you've grown. You say, yeah, these are good enough for God. 
That's essentially what's going on here. Cain has said, this is good enough for God. Abel has said, I want the very best to be for God. And God responds accordingly. The Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And the result is this. Cain was furious, very angry, and he looked despondent. Here's the point. Abel brings the very best towards God. One scholar puts it this way. He, he, he said, um, Abel appears, this is a quote, Abel appears to have demonstrated a quality of heart and of mind that Cain did not possess. Cain's purpose was noble, but his act was not ungrudging and open-hearted. Thus, the narrative conveys the fundamental principle of Judaism that the act of worship must be informed by a genuine devotion of the heart. What's going on here is, who do you really worship? And for Cain, his worship object is still Cain. For Abel, his heart is, how do I please God? The heart of this issue is that Cain thinks more highly of himself than he does God. He knows that God exists. He even seems to have a relationship with him to some extent because he brings this offering. But his relationship is marked by personal preference and personal satisfaction rather than desiring God to be first in his life and desiring for his life to be that of an image bearer of the king. When someone were to look at Cain, they would have said, oh, you saved the best for yourself. When someone were to look at Abel, they would say, you have given your best to God. And we find this principle all throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is watching a widow bring just a couple of coins to give as an offering. And he looks at her with all she has. She's giving of what she had. She's giving everything of hers to say, God, I want to further your kingdom. Here is my offering. She puts it in the temple. But he looks at the religious leaders who walk by and who clang in big bills, coins, and do it with a desire to be seen as righteous. And Jesus looks with favor on the one who says, God, here is everything I have. You come first in my life. That's the contrast that's going on here. Because worship is at its core an issue of the heart, not just of the hand. The result of, having, of God having regard for Cain's sacrifice was this, that Cain was furious and he looked despondent. The word furious here comes from a word that means to burn. He burned. He was mad. And it's the first mention of this word in Scripture. And later in Scripture, when you see this word, sometimes you'll see this word where anger takes place, but then that anger becomes something that is very ungodly. Because one of the things about anger is anger unchecked can turn into violence, which can turn into a whole host of other things, as our story shows. The word here for despondent, in Hebrew, it's literally his face fell. He, he looks at how God responds, and he just goes... And it carries this connotation of depression or alienation from others. Here's the idea. Cain sees how God reacts to his brother. 
And he sees how God reacts to him, and he doesn't go, wait, help me understand. He becomes angry, and he turns inward on himself. Turning inward on ourselves is a really difficult place to be because when we turn inward and we become uh, alienated from others, we begin to look more at ourselves even than before. And that can then turn into more actions that then do not honor God. Cain does not trust Yahweh or does not ask Yahweh why his offering was not accepted but he turns in on himself and he becomes a murderer, one commentary suggests. Verses 6 and 7 continue the story. It says, Then the Lord looked, said to Cain, Why are you furious? First of all, I love how God just comes to him and talks to him. All right? He could have let him stew. He could have let him get more angry. He could have come in, you know, guns blazing and say, you have no right to do this. Don't you know who I am? He comes and he asks a question. Cain, why are you furious? And it's kind of reminiscent of how God came to Adam and Eve, Cain's parents, in the chapter before. Where are you? Imagine the heart of God seeking someone whom he wants to lovingly correct. Cain, why are you furious? He comes to Cain in his selfishness, and he says, why do you look despondent? And then God doesn't leave him to question what's going on here. He he says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, he says, sin is crouching at your door. God comes to him to warn him. He comes to him to provoke a change of heart in Cain. See, we often act from our emotions. Uh, we, we, we notice a, a, a child, our child ramping up an emotion. We come to them and we say, if you continue this, you might throw that across the room. Please don't do that. If this continues, you're going to boil over and do something you might, re- you might regret. We we might be hurt by something that our spouse has done, but in our anger, in in, in our despondency, we double down on what we want instead of choosing to say, wait, what was the right thing to do here? We're at work or we're at school and someone tells us to do something. We're not pleased by it. And instead of seeking clarification, instead of trying to de-escalate the situation, we turn inward on ourselves. We burn. And oftentimes what comes of that is not good. It leads to more sin. It leads to more hurt. It does not fix the problem. God comes to lovingly warn Cain. But he also comes to, to say this. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? He says. If you do what's right, won't, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. And he says this. It's desire is for you. Where have we seen desire before? Desire happens in the past chapter in Genesis 3.16, where God tells Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband. And it's this desire for control that's in play here. So God tells Cain, he says, "Um, sin desires to control you. It wants to rule your heart, but you must rule over it. 
as I was reading through this this morning, one, one thing I just wrote in my Bible, I, I don't know if you, re, if you write in your Bible, but I do because I like to remember things and I won't if I don't write it in there. And I love to study through and kind of look at it and, and go like this. But I, I, I wrote this down this morning as I was reviewing. But you must rule over it. I wrote this. You don't have to give in to sin is basically what God is saying. He's saying, you don't have to live this way. There is another way. Master the sin. Master this in your life. Don't let what is happening control you. Rather, choose a different path. Because when it all comes down to it, we're responsible for our choices. God helps us with that, but we are responsible for our choices. Another way you might say this, uh, another way that you might understand what God is doing here is, is he might be coming to Cain and saying this, say no to sin right now so that we don't have to deal with a bigger problem later. Say no to sin early. So all this lead up comes to chapter 4 verse 8. Now, if this were a cop show, they would spend a whole time, you know, at the crime scene trying to figure out what's going on and how did this happen. The author of Genesis has given us this background. And notice how plainly the next verse is read. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. Some manuscripts actually don't even have that, that phrase. Um, but whether it's there or whether it's not, it doesn't matter. Because in the second half of the verse, which is attested in a whole bunch of different manuscripts, it says, And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. The idea of field here could be translated as an uninhabited place. They're out where if Cain were to do something against his brother, no one else would hear the screams and the cries of his brother. He is out of the range of help. And this is one reason that this is a premeditated murder. He, he's out where he knows he's not going to be caught or found because there's no one to corroborate what happened. Except God. Except God. So, verse 8 happens, and then notice how quickly the Lord comes back to Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, I love it, he asks a question. He doesn't come in guns blazing, he doesn't come in and say, you did this, you did this. He, he, he wants Cain to acknowledge something of his own sin. And, and notice, um, when, when he comes to Cain the first time in verses 6 and 7, Cain doesn't respond. He doesn't say, I've got it, God, don't worry about it. All you have is God's warning, and then Cain kills his brother. It's as if he chose not to heed God's warning. The Lord comes to Cain, and he says, where's your brother Abel? Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's keeper? Where is your brother Abel? God asks. Why does God ask this question? He already knows the answer, but he comes and he asks this to bring Cain to the realization that what he has done is wrong. Later in the, uh, in the Torah, we find that biblical law expects that a man's brother would be the first to assist him in times of trouble. You can look at Leviticus 25 for that, verse 48, sometime later 
If you want, you can look at that. There is a responsibility that we have for one another. Cain has a responsibility to care for his brother, and yet he has not done that. And notice what happens as a result. Cain, of course, says, am I my brother's keeper? God says to him, what you have done, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The only thing we know about Abel's life is this. He was born to his parents. Um, He offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God because it was offered with the right heart and the right motive to honor God first in his life. Um, In all that, Abel doesn't speak. The only time Abel speaks is when his blood speaks from the ground. The picture is this. Scripture says that the life is in the blood, and it's this blood that cries out to God, and God hears this cry. The the, the word for cry here is the word in Hebrew. I'll give it to you. It's za'ak. Can you say that? Za'ak. Very good job, Randy. Yeah, za'ak. And it's this idea of cry or a desperate cry. Um, You might think of it as za'ak. When you're fighting with someone and you want help, za'ak. And it's this cry that goes to the ground. In Scripture, it's used in several different places. In Genesis 41, it's used as a cry of desperate men who do not have food. In Exodus 14, it's used as a cry of people expecting to die. In Judges chapter 4, it's used by, as a cry of people who are being oppressed by their enemies. It's the scream, it's the cry of a help, for help of a woman who is being raped in Deuteronomy 22. It's the plea to God of the victims of injustice in Exodus 22. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms unite with narratives like this, one writer writes, to assert that God does hear his people's desperate cries for help. We see this in the early part of Exodus when when they're in bondage, they're in slavery, they cry out to the Lord, and the text says that God heard their cry. God heard their cry. On a day in which we recognize the ending of over 62 million unborn babies' lives since 1973, it's helpful for us to remember that God hears each one of these cries. I was looking at something yesterday uh, about human trafficking and how very real it is today and the numbers of people who are caught up in this. God hears their cries. If you're going through a really challenging time right now, And people around you are not hearing your cry. Know this. God hears your cry. God hears your cry. In Genesis chapter 9, it records a covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. And the flood brought judgment upon the entire known world at that time. And Genesis 9, 6 records the first mention of the image of God after the fall. And Genesis 9, 6 says this. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. It would have been completely within God's purview as creator to say to Cain, because you have ended the life of your brother, your life has now ended. But notice what happens. He says in verse 11, so now you are cursed. By the way, this is the first cursing of man. The last time, it was just the serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed, but man is not cursed. But here he curses Cain. 
Now you are cursed. You are alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. Verse 12, if you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But God, but Cain answered the Lord, and he says this, my punishment is too great to bear. God makes Cain a nomad. He makes him a restless wanderer on the earth. The Moody Bible Commentary, just a fantastic study resource, says this. It says, in effect, his punishment, God's punishment for Cain, was to deter him from further sin by taking the profession of his brother Abel and becoming a shepherd. God showed Cain preemptive mercy by withholding from him, despite his lack of remorse, his full penalty that sin deserved. See, each person is still an image bearer of God, and Cain did the height of that. He murdered his brother. Cain responds to God. He says, my punishment is too great to bear. And this is interesting. I learned this this week. Um, there's a couple different ways we can translate this. Um, the most common one goes something like what the HCSB has right here. My punishment is too great to bear. The word for punishment here can also be the, translated the word sin. So your translation might have my sin is too great to bear. Um, but it's interesting because after Cain says this, God modifies his punishment a little bit. What is Cain doing here? How would you respond to this sentence? See, see, this idea of punishment is synonymous with sin in the Hebrew mind. But the way it works, and I can show you all the details later if you want, this could also alternatively be translated, my punishment or my sin is too great to be forgiven. It's a legitimate translation. Uh, because of the verbs that are used here in the context within Scripture that, that these are used. So you could translate this, my, my punishment is too great to bear, my sin is too great to bear. Or you could translate it as, my sin is too great to be forgiven. Or you could translate it as a question, is my sin too great to be forgiven? See, what, what I think is going on here is that Cain is now feeling, because of the judgment that has come from God, wait, what I have done has harmed God. It has harmed my brother. It has broken the image that God created me in. It has, it has wrestled away this part of the image bearer that I'm supposed to be for God. Is my sin too great to be forgiven? Or said as an exclamation, my sin is too great to be forgiven. It's interesting, because if you think about it like that, notice then what God does. He says, Cain says in verse 14, Since you're banishing me today from the soil, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, he says, whoever finds me will kill me. But verse 15 says, Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, or you could translate it as, not so, that the Lord says to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. So in this exclamation, you know, if, if Cain had just said, my sin is too great to bear, that almost takes it as though he turns it in on himself. I can't bear this anymore. I'm just going to die. 
But if he says, as I think we could rightly translate this, my sin is too great to be forgiven. Here we have Cain saying, I have messed up before you, God. Can this be forgiven? And God responds with, I'm going to put a mark on you. Essentially, I'm going to preserve your life, Cain. If Cain was all about himself right here, I don't think God would say, here, let me put the mark on you to keep people from killing you. In Psalm 32, David writes these words. David, as I said earlier, he he composes many of these worship hymns. He is the king of Israel. I mean, he is like the most heralded king of Israel. He's, He's a person whom the scripture calls a man after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery and murder and all those kind of things. Notice what he says in Psalm 32, verse 1. He says, how joyful is the one whose sin or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man that the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. From day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Verse five says this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Linguistically, there's words used in Psalm 32, 5 that are similar to what is being used in Genesis chapter 4. I think the point is this. Upon saying, my sin is too great to be forgiven, it can't be dealt with, it can't be taken away. The promise of God comes in. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, David writes, and you took away the guilt of my sin. In this moment, God meets Cain in mercy and in grace. And what I believe is his expression that forgiveness cannot reach him. See, the nature of sin is that it separates us from God. And it can be tempting to believe that these things that we do in our life are so heinous that we are forever separated from God. Because that's true. Apart from God's work in our life, apart from God's forgiveness that comes through confession and trusting Jesus, we are separated from God. Because of the fall, our our lives are marred from sin. Sin in our world Sin is of our own volition. But with God, all things are possible. With God, he comes and he meets us and he says, yes, you have done that. But when we confess our sins, the gospel, not the gospel, the letter of 1 John says and promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I don't know about you, um, but I make a lot of poor choices sometimes in my life. Choices to lash out with my tongue. Choices to, to think of myself more highly than I ought. Our world is filled with people who have made decisions, decisions that really harm the image of God and people. Speaking down to one another. Um, physical abuse even to the point of committing murder. 
Our world is filled with this. And yet God comes to each of us and he says, you have sinned. Acknowledge your sin before me. Allow me to change your heart and to change your life. One of the passages that came to me this morning as I was thinking about this was James chapter 4. And it says this, what are the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire, do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask because you, and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own evil desires. This is a picture of Cain. He wanted to spend things on his own evil desires. He wanted to make himself first. And the letter of James says, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason? The scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. But verse 6 reminds us this great truth. But he gives greater grace. That is, God gives us greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When God comes to Cain in the garden and he says, Cain, 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 why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. James gives us a New Testament comparison of what we are to do. Submit to God, therefore. You find yourself in sin? Submit to God. Turn the other way. Resist the devil. Resist the one who wants to control you and have your life marked by sin and rebellion towards God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And here's the promise. He will flee from you. He will. Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. He says, verse 8, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. In other words, when we pursue a path of sin, don't relish in that sin. Don't, don't enjoy it. Say, God, this is wrong. I have sinned against you. Mourn and weep. Humble yourselves before God and let God exalt you. The idea is this. God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to walk with us as he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He wants his heart to become what we desire. He, he wants our life to be that which would reflect who he is and what he has done. And this is made possible through the work of Christ and our submission to his word in our life. See, sin is something that wants to hide in the dark in our lives. God comes to Cain. He says, let's not let this hide in the dark. Let's get this out. Let's deal with this. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. 
Christ entered the most holy place once for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. That's how Christ entered in. By his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled. This is describing the sacrificial system that existed in Israel in a little bit later period than Genesis 4. Um, as, as, these, um, as the blood and the goat the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow are sprinkled to sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. See, God calls us to serve him. The only way to serve is to acknowledge how we have sinned against God and against our brother and to receive grace and to walk in his way. So how do we apply a story like this, right? How, how do you apply the first murder that happens in the world? Well, the first one is this, say no to sin early. If you have sin in your life, let's deal with it now. Let's be open about it now. As we deal with it now, it actually provides freedom to move forward. That sin may be something you have held on to for years. Confess it to God. Trust that his grace is sufficient for you today. That his work is complete to make you pure and holy and blameless before the Father. Regularly confess sin to God. As we regularly re confess sin, we restore our relationship with the Father. 1 John 1, 9, I already quoted it to you. As we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all this unrighteousness. And the result is that we more effectively bear the image of God in our lives to our world. So say no to sin early, regularly confess sin. Two things that are good to practice in this regard. Another one is this, um, seek to serve God first in your life. See, what, what happened and resulted in murder started way back before the commit of murder because Cain did not want to give God his best and his everything. I dare say that's one of the hardest parts because we tend to want to hold on to stuff and find our identity in what we have done rather than say, God, all I have is yours. <laughs> God, let my life bring you honor and glory. We're not writing our own story. We're writing God's with him. Seek to serve God first in your life. What drives your day? As you think about the meetings and the goals that you have for your life, the personal and business achievements, the health markers, do they pursue an end that glorifies you? Or do they pursue an end that glorifies God? There's a big difference. As image bearers of God, how we prioritize our lives demonstrates our priorities of worship. Lastly is this. Murder, like worship, is ultimately an issue of the heart. Um, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. He, he talks about um, you don't just murder when you, when you physically kill someone. You murder by the thoughts that occur in your life thoughts of hatred. Uh, he says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is an Aramaic, uh, Aramaic uh, expression of contempt, or you fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. 
You know, so even in how we speak to one another, it reveals a bit of where our lives are. How do you speak to the people around you? Do, do you have relationships that are still in conflict? Can you honestly say today before God, I am living by God's grace as rightly as I can with people? If there's something that God is pricking at your heart this morning that you need to go and make right, pick up the phone, send a text, begin a conversation that begins with, I am sorry. Murder-like worship is an issue of the heart. Our responsibility must be to care for our brother and our sister. And this begins by looking at them as image bearers. We must see each other as image bearers of God. Because once we devalue someone's life by making them anything less, we're willing to do anything to to suit our own agenda. Friend, you are an image bearer of God. I don't care what your past is like. You are an image bearer of God. I'm an image bearer of God. By God's grace, let us live that way. Let's pray together. Our Father in the heaven, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you that we have been made in your image, in your likeness, that you have created us with intention and with purpose. And God, some of us come here today and there is sin in our life. And God, we just need to confess it to you. We need to trust that there's no way that, God, we're going to earn our way into a relationship with you. In fact, God, it is you that have come to us even in our sin because you desire to be in relationship with us. And so, God, we we confess this morning of whatever way it is Insert what that is for yourself. We confess this morning that we have sinned against you. God, we pray that you would renew our minds by the word of God, that your spirit would have great power in us, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received as your sons and your daughters. God, we trust again today forgiveness that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone to pay for our sin. There is no way, God, we could ever, ever pay for what we have done that has been an offense to you. But God, you are rich in mercy. And you meet us here today. Thank you, God, for the redemption and forgiveness that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. May our lives this week reflect the image of God shining through our lives. As you say in the Gospel of Matthew, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We are going to transition to one more thing and then we will be finished, but this one thing is absolutely fantastic. I want to invite uh, Pastor Tom and my friend John here as John uh, is baptized today. The only thing I want to say is you know how we rejoice after baptism, right? Do we need to practice? Okay, I'm going to trust you on this one, all right? We rejoice, and if you're at home, I expect extra clapping from you today. So, Pastor Tom. So I just uh, like to make a couple of comments about baptism in general before 
Uh, we baptize our brother John Dyke this morning. Uh, the one thing I want you to know is that baptism does not save. So I don't want anybody to think that uh, this is somehow uh, saving John from his sins. John put his faith in Jesus Christ, and so his uh, eternal joy with God in heaven was assured before he ever set foot in these waters this morning. And so uh, when he is coming for baptism, it is not in order to contribute to his salvation in any way, but it is a picture of his salvation. He is publicly declaring his faith in Jesus Christ to you this morning. And so as he's standing here with me in the water, it's a picture that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, I died with him because I've been united with him by faith. My sins were nailed with him there and paid for in full by his death on the cross. And then when John goes under the water, it's a picture that when Jesus Christ was buried, I was united with him in his burial. The picture that he truly had died, the penalty was paid in full. And then as he comes up out of the water, it's a picture that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, John rose with him because he's united with him by faith. He has new spiritual life as a result of what Jesus Christ did for him. And so he is alive toward God. And so that is what we are doing. We are not somehow saving John this morning. We're giving you a picture of what happened when John put his faith in Jesus Christ and was saved by him. Brother John. So Brother John, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And do you desire to publicly proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized? I do. Then based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and because you've asked to be baptized, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death. And raised again to walk in newness of life. Ah, love it. Love it, love it, love it. So good, so good. Uh, with that, would you stand with me? If you are a follower of Jesus and you have not made that proclamation, I invite you to do that. Scripture invites you to do that, and we'd love to talk with you about that. If you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to follow Jesus with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Our Father and our King, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is not counted against him because he has trusted in your unfailing love and his heart rejoices in your salvation. God, we are a blessed people. 
Not because of any material thing, but because, God, you have taken up residence in our hearts through faith. Thank you, God, for this gift. And as we go forth from this place, God, may that picture of Christ be what our world sees. For your glory and for your kingdom, we pray. Together we say, amen. May the love of God go with you. May God's peace shine upon you this day. May you learn again what it means to live as his image bearer in our world. God bless. You're dismissed.